Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to a world view of history in accessibleworld.org. We're in a world view of history room. The date is Wednesday, August 18th, 2010. Our host is Don Queen, and we'll begin uh, with Don's usual uh, fine introduction to the assassination of Julius Caesar, which is the book we're reading. Pause button. Alt plus up. Thank you, Bob, and good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss the assassination of Julius Caesar, which marked the end of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the reign of the infamous Roman emperors. Tonight's author, Michael Parenti, maintains that over 95% of historians, both ancient and modern, have misinterpreted this historic event that these, quote, gentlemen historians, unquote, had the same class bias as did the assassins themselves. Did Parenti make his case? Let's hear from the author himself. TUC Radio, San Francisco. Time of Useful Consciousness. Michael Parenti, The Assassination of Julius Caesar, A People's History of Ancient Rome. Michael Parenti has written on empire, fascism, imperialism, the demise of U.S. democracy, globalism, and terrorism. His most recent book, and the first of his 17 books to be nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, explores the death of Julius Caesar. Who was Julius Caesar? A dictator or a populist? And who really was Brutus, who was among those who murdered him on the Ides of March? A young hero or a participant in a deep-seated conspiracy? Here is Michael Parenti talking about the assassination of Julius Caesar. He was recorded by Brian Berry at Modern Times Bookstore in San Francisco in the summer of 2003. I wrote this book about ancient history, and um, one of the things I discovered was that ancient history is not all that ancient, that it has a currency, it evokes all sorts of themes. Collingwood uh, once wrote that Historians always see history in terms of their own epoch and their own time. Now that has a very nice ring to it. That's sort of almost an axiom of historiography, that each age redefines the history according to its own needs. And it's kind of a good antidote to the simple objectivism of, uh, of, of somebody like Ranke, for instance, von Ranke who was considered a great historian, uh, who said, history is facts. And where do you get these facts from? You get these facts from documents. And where do you get the documents from? You get the documents from the Prussian government. <laughs> no wonder the Prussian government treated him so handsomely. 
gave him a chair at the university. The Bavarian king, the Prussian king, they gave Ranke all sorts of money. He was a total reactionary, hostile to the German parliament, as weak as, weak as it was, and voted, and voted an honorary member of the American Historical Association about the second or third year of its existence. They, they put Ranke in as one of the great lights of history. So there is that view, and there are these people who are totally, what's the term, embedded, embedded in some interest or another, and they insist they're writing totally objective history. What I discovered in my research of, of the late Republic of the Roman Empire, which is roughly, say, 100 to, to 40 BC, what I discovered is that it just wasn't true. They don't all see this differently at all. They all see it exactly the same way. Augustine, whenever he opens his mouth about ancient Rome, about the Gracchi, sounds exactly like Cicero and exactly like Cyril Robinson or Ronald Symes, to name modern-day ones. They all say the same things about that troubled and incredible uh, struggle, struggling period of ancient Rome. He sounds exactly like Gibbon. And the same with all the ancients. Plutarch, Dio Cassius, Appian, Suetonius, Tacitus, they all, all sound extremely the same. Then you look at the second string Roman historians. I thought maybe, for some reason, I thought, well, the lesser known ones, the small guys, maybe they'll get a little closer to a different perspective. No. Valerius Maximus, Valerius Perdiculius, Asconius Pedonius, they all, they all have the same view about the reformers of the Roman Republic. They all pretty much have Cicero's view. Despite their differences in time, what really gets mind-blowing is when you read the modern historians. Almost all of them say the exact same things that the ancients did. So, despite the differences in language, despite the differences in epic and culture and region and nationality, despite all those immense differences, they all sound exactly the same and take the exact same line because they all share the exact same class ideology. They all are gentlemen historians. Well, by the way, you know, book readings sometimes, I've been to some authors like to get up there and they take it quite literally. And they read, and they read, and they read, mercilessly sometimes, right? Well, having said that, I, um, I will read a few lines. The question that informs this book is why did a coterie of Roman senators assassinate their fellow aristocrat and celebrated ruler, Julius Caesar? The prevailing opinion among historians, ancient and modern alike, is that the senatorial assassins were intent upon restoring republican liberties by doing away with a despotic usurper. That is the position taken by almost all these historians, ancient and modern alike. That is also the position of the assassins themselves. 
I present an alternative explanation. The Senate aristocrats killed Caesar because they perceived him to be a popular leader who threatened their privileged interests. By this view, the deed was more an act of treason than tyrannicide. One incident in a line of political murders dating back across the better part of a century. A dramatic manifestation of a long-standing struggle between opulent conservatives and popularly supported reformers. Um, <clears throat> the Roman aristocracy remained forever inhospitable to Rome's democratic element. And Rome's democratic element was the people. So Caesar wasn't killed because he was ambitious, as many historians say. They, ambition, I mean, ambition was their common coin. These aristocrats knew ambition. They'd kill their own mothers to get, to get a step ahead. Uh, they, didn't, they, they wouldn't be turned off. Oh, he's kind of pushy. Oh, he's kind of ambitious. <laughs> He wasn't killed because he, he grabbed power and he took power. Power was, again, the coin of the realm, the currency. That's what they were all dealing in was power. That didn't bother them. He, they wouldn't, they, as Suetonius says, they hated him and they killed him because he, he failed to rise when a delegation of senators came to give him certain honors. Oh, give me a break. You killed the leader of the republic because he didn't get up from the chair? They were all caustic with each other. They all cut each other and gave jabs and, and sparred in the Senate. Very acerbic debates at times. He was killed because he began to infringe on the prerogatives of the aristocracy. He was killed because he canceled rent payments for an entire year. Do you know how, you know how much a landlord likes you when you cancel rent payments for an entire year? That doesn't win popular. And most of these aristocrats were landlords. They were slumlords. Cicero was a slumlord. Crassus was the richest man in Rome. Most of his money, well, he had estates, he had merchant uh, trade and all that stuff, but most of his money came from uh, buying up m many of the slums. They hated him because he, he instituted debt cancellation. Suetonius reckons about 25% of the outstanding debt in all of Rome was canceled by Julius Caesar. 25%, one-fourth, that's a lot. You know how creditors feel when you cancel debts on them? They don't like that either. He canceled because the rates, interest rates were about 45% interest is what you paid on a loan. Another thing he supported was land redistribution. For centuries, Rome had been vittled by the farmers, independent, small, poor farmers working the rich lands of the Campania region around Rome. And the land was publicly owned, it was the Egar Publicus, it was public land. Um, and, the, and the farmers paid a modest rent to the public treasury. And you had these aristocrats not making a penny on the whole thing. All that land was sooner or later expropriated. What happened to the farmers? They were driven into the towns. In, in Rome it wasn't shanty towns, it was tenement houses, seven, eight, nine stories high, um, walk-ups, of course, no running water, uh, no, no lighting, no, no, um, no sewage, uh, typhoid, fires, the houses easily collapsed in many instances. So the, 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 there was the move among the reformers was to redistribute some of that land. Caesar also did some other things. He 
argued that every rich landowner who had a slave labor force had to hire one-third of his force as free labor. This would create more jobs for the proletariat. That's what they would call the proletariat. That was their name. And it would also cut in on the profits of the very rich and give some of it back to the people. Another thing he did was impose luxury taxes and limits on how much wealth can be accumulated. The limits were very generous. So that's why they hated Julius Caesar. Well, Parenti, if all ancients and almost all modern historians have one interpretation about the motives of these aristocrats, how do you arrive at your conclusion? Did you unearth new evidence? No, I didn't unearth new evidence. I mean, 2,000 years, it's all been pretty much uh, developed, but you can take old evidence and make new associations with it. Uh, I found a letter by Cicero, and when I say I, f I found a letter, I don't mean, I don't mean I unearthed this letter, you know, and I blew it off and found an original manuscript. Uh, it's a letter, all, all his letters are published, but I'll tell you, if many historians had read this letter, uh, many also had ignored it. This is what the letter says. It was written right after Caesar was murdered. Mark Antony convinced the Senate that they had better keep Caesar's reforms. If you go to the Foro Romano today in Rome, you could see the Senate House is right, it's just about 100 meters up from the center of the Forum where Caesar's body was, where there was a huge crowd, including some of his troops. And Mark Antony convinced them and said, you better keep, you better keep his reforms intact. And a very nervous Senate said, yes, we won't act against the assassins, that's their concession to them, they're going to be even-handed, and we're going to keep Caesar's reforms. Well, when Cicero heard about this, he was absolutely furious. After killing Caesar, his reforms rain, remain in place. Quote, is it not lamentable that we should be upholding the very things that made us hate Caesar? He makes my case. That's my case. It wasn't Caesar's power. It wasn't Caesar's personal attributes. It wasn't this or that. The other thing. Caesar was now dead. And that isn't what they hated. It wasn't that he violated the Roman constitution and the Republic, as they were constantly saying. It was that he made these reforms. And that, that kind of evidence, you see, is systematically ignored by the Ciceronian historian. It's a very funny thing in history, because what you're dealing with here are intentions and motives. And no one's ever seen a motive. Motives are not, are not empirically observable. Uh, we, uh, we only can impute or ascribe a motive we can never really uh, see one. You see the actions, and then the people who, who did take the actions give you a profession of what their motive was. And you can accept that or not accept it, you know. I attacked Iraq because it had weapons of mass destruction. That's what motivated me, you see. But you can, you can, test, you can test it in certain ways. I mean, you can't test it as you could in a laboratory where you say there's an independent variable, a dependent variable, and you hold this constant, you control for that, and 
oh, that didn't work, or let's, re let's, let's run it through again, this time we'll do another variable. Let's, you can't do that in history, it's true, you can't say, hey, let's all do the French Revolution over just one more time, but this time, would you please, <laughs> that doesn't happen. But you can weigh evidence against other evidence, you see. Consider this. The Roman senators, the assassins, killed Caesar because he was becoming a dictator and they wanted to preserve the Republic. That's the central view. Okay, how can you test something like that? Here's how you could test it. Very simply, about 40 years before, Rome did get a dictatorship. Sulla came in. Sulla brought an army into Rome, something that was a sacred rule. No general should ever lead his troops into Rome. Sulla came in and he murdered thousands of people. He murdered 50 senators who he felt weren't conservative enough. He murdered a thousand equestrians. He murdered thousands upon thousands of Democrats and common people. Sunna confiscated land. He wiped out the democratic power of the people's tribunes. He, he wiped out their power to veto certain senatorial acts. He froze out the popular assemblies. He bypassed them. He gave the Senate pretty much more power than it had in the Constitution three centuries earlier. So what, what does Cicero say about Sulla's bloody dictatorship in 63 BC, looking back on what happened in 80, which was only 17 years before, and Cicero lived through it? This is what he says about Sulla's bloody reign, quote, all was basically admirable, though temper and moderation were somewhat lacking. So a big hug and then a little small slap on the wrist. So the senatorial aristocrats say they didn't want one man rule, but they did want one man rule when it went their way, when it favored their class interests. Look, they even then supported for the next hundreds and hundreds of years, emperors who came in. After Caesar and after the Second Civil War, it was Augustus who took over. They supported him. They never, they never went back, they never advocated going back to a Republican system. When push came to shove, their vast wealth meant more to them than state power. As long as state power was in the hands of someone who protected their vast wealth. That's the important thing to remember. Now what's impressive is how many classicists of the modern era share the ancient ad hominem characterizations of Rome's reform, reformist leaders. One of the things the, old, the ancients all say, and the modern guys accept it and, and repeat it and add adjectives of their own, the Gracchi were rash, erratic, power-hungry, demagogic, violating the Constitution, unlawful, Clodius was ruthless, unstable, unprincipled. So was Catiline, so was Saturninus, and of course, so was Caesar. This investing, this ascribing ad hominem uh, devaluing attributes to popular reform leaders is a technique that still goes on to this day. These ad hominem characterizations extend not only to the leaders, but to the people themselves. Throughout history, gentlemen historians have been writing about the mob, the rabble, 
the people who are irrational, the people who do all sorts of things. The denigration of the common people as a shiftless, ignorant mob, dangerously irrational. And the ancient Roman writers were no different, nor the latter-day classicists. This is what Cicero says about the Roman mob, the rabble. That's what he calls them. Beggars, convicts, madmen, urban scum, slaves, foreigners, exiles, a starving, contemptible rabble. He admits they're starving, you see, but he, he doesn't see that as symptomatic of their victimization. He sees that as a deficiency that's personal to them. You see, the starving, unwashed. When you say when people are unwashed, they're dirty. Why do you think people are dirty? Because they, don't, they can't afford to go to the baths, the Roman baths. They, they don't have any running water. They don't have any olive oil to clean themselves with. They don't have anything. So that's why they're dirty. But no, you blame the symptoms of oppression on the oppressed themselves. Well, who were these people? They were, if you read these historians, you find they were layabouts, wastrels, you know, just irrational thrill-seekers at the bread and the, just waiting to live off free bread and free circuses. Had nothing else to do. First of all, you couldn't live off the bread dole. The bread dole for the Roman proletariat made the difference between starvation and survival. But it wasn't enough. You can't just live on bread. You need money for fuel. You need money for rent. You need money for clothing. Uh, they worked. That's what the Roman, that's what the Roman proletariat did. I'll tell you who they really were. They were masons, carpenters, shopkeepers, scribes, glaziers, butchers, blacksmiths, coppersmiths. I gleaned all these professions from the various descriptions of everyday Rome. Bakers, dyers, rope makers, weavers, fullers, tanners, metal workers, scrap dealers, teamsters, dockers, porters, and various day jobbers. They were the toiling proletariat of Rome. And what did they do? What did they do in their time on the stage of history? This is what they did. They fought for two centuries against kingships and overthrew a kingship. They fought and, had, and mobilized and organized secessions, refusing to go in the army, refusing to participate um, and work, and going off the great Aventine secession and such. To, uh, to win the right to popular assemblies. They fought for secret ballot and got it. <clears throat> they made common cause with slaves, sometimes, not always. They supported land reform, debt cancellation, rent reduction. They supported popular leaders like the ones I've been talking about, the Gracchi and Caesar, and they bitterly fought and opposed Sulla. So there you have it. Thank you for your kind attention. <clears throat> My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening. Give us a call. I'd like to thank Bob and Rick Harmon for their technical assistance. To get things started, did this book change your viewpoint about Julius Caesar, about the political events surrounding his murder, or the assassins themselves. Did this Berkeley and Pacifica radio liberal get beyond his own personal 
biases. So, let's open it up and hear what you have to say. Although, Well, Don, he did a great job, Michael Parenti. And um, I guess I did not read all the book, but the question I have is there was so much killing. I mean, from 100 to uh, 44 B.C. or when Caesar gets killed to 40 B.C., uh, a lot of it was intrigue and conspiracy. And Parenti is saying that these senators... Well, with Caesar, anyway, killed him because he was a reformer. What about the other ones before him? You know, Sola did a lot of killing and some of those guys. Uh, but it was it was very good and very well done by Parenti. And I don't know if you know that bookstore, Don. I would sure like to go there. I have never been there, but uh, it, it sounds like a good place to be. Um, I remember Sola was uh, a conservative, so he, he was fighting it. But the whole system... You know, all those things with the tribunes and the, they had, what, two or three assemb different assemblies. They, the, the, the people kept trying to get some handle on the Senate, and the Senate, senators wouldn't give them anything. And they, you know, for the, they had the tribal assembly, and they had, they could do certain things. And then, they, so they gave them tribunes. They had ten tribunes, but one tribune could veto another. And so they, they, they were fighting it every which way, and... What I heard, read today, which really, I didn't realize, when they talked about serving time in the army, the people were required to serve in the army. They they were had to they were conscripted from age 17 to 46. No wonder they lost their land. There was one instance where the mob was, or there was a conspiracy to kill the whole Senate. Remember, one of them before Caesar to to kill the whole Senate. Were they just? Uh, the the rabble I mean the reformers the guys who wanted reform to to begin or continue I I didn't get that one that was you know they they said no we're going to kill all the senate it broke up they didn't do it but uh, they gosh there's so much killing anybody else have anything to uh, to comment on first I'd like to thank Don I and I I just marvel at these things that you get before we even get to the discussion and wonder how in the world you even find them that was that was wonderful and. My, my basic feeling was he certainly didn't have much good to say about Cicero, you know, which was really a whole change in your question that asked us. Did, did it change our opinion? It certainly did. And I thought he supported his case extremely well. But he left no doubt what he thought about Cicero. And I think in answer to Bob's question, wasn't a lot of this that the poor people were just so downtrodden that they, they were getting desperate? Yeah, he didn't bring in that, uh, I think that's what Bob was saying. You know, they talk about uh, Caesar crossing the Rubicon. Yeah, he was bringing his troops down into Rome, which he wasn't supposed to do. Sulla did it too, but, um, uh, and, and he did it, did it by force. But uh, um, it sounded like it needed, he was doing some good things. And uh, uh, whether he would have given up the, his uh, crown like Sulla did and retire, I don't know. But... Uh, that was interesting. But again, I think he's making his point because I thought Cicero was a spokesman. It was the historian. I know about Gibbons. I've never read the, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. But, but Cicero in school, we always learned that that's the word. And boy, Parenti takes him on. You know, uh, by the way, you can read Gibbon. Uh, uh, Alexander Scorby read it on Talking Book. But... Um, uh, you know, I, 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 you, know you, you read some of these... Uh, 
uh, fiction stories about Rome and the Didius the Finder, and some if you like mystery stories and stuff, and they make C uh, Cicero a real nice guy, you know, and uh, you know his friend Cicero and so on. But uh, uh, he, this Cicero was really something else. He didn't end up too well, though. Hi, this is uh, Tim Cummings. Two two comments. A, a, a point of mine. I didn't. Cheryl and I both read this. We didn't finish the book, but um, or I didn't finish the book. She got it further than I did, but. The thing that was interesting because in the whole chapter on Cicero, all I kept thinking when um, none of the other senators wanted to contradict any of this propaganda that Cicero was spreading was of the book that we read on McCarthy. And, it, you know, I, I almost kind of saw some parallels there. But on the more general issue, it's really interesting because it brings up a, this whole discussion brings up a larger issue is what are the, you know, we all grow up um, in school thinking that history is just a bunch of facts. And we never uh, look at the fact that history is always written from a point of view, whether it be liberal, conservative, Marxist, whatever. And I know that there have been, I mean, not, for example, after World War II, in the 60s, there were a lot of, quote, revisionist uh, historians who reexamined the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and things like that. And it really does make you think that, you know, these people, these historians are all human beings and they all do, you know, have some kind of biases. And, you know, how do you make sure when you're, when you're reading any of these people that you keep that, um, take that into account when you're reading history? Because I think we all grow up, you know, believing kind of the naive realism that, you know, you know, history is uh, its just basically a set of facts, and this happened, and this happened. But this book, I mean, really, you know, points out that case, that all these historians, modern and ancient, for the most part, you know, all had this one view, even down to the, you know, 20th century, all had this, this view of Caesar. So, you know, it brings up the whole, the, the kind of more general question, how do we evaluate uh, you know, all these historians and to figure out kind of where they're coming from, because they're not going to come out and say, well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm uh, pro-Caesar because I'm liberal or I'm anti-Caesar because I'm a, I'm a gentleman historian. But one thing that comes, that's very good, Tim, the McCarthy thing, that was good. Uh, I, I would guess if I had the time, I would check sources, you know, go to their source material. But you're right, historians are proving a case. And yes, they have their biases. I mean, when you say, oh, no, I'm a historian, I give all sides of it, uh, they have their biases. And um, I would go to source material, just like um, Parenti said, I found, well, I didn't unearth the letter, but uh, this letter's here, and I'll show you what uh, Cicero said, because he's trying to make his point of view. So you got to, it, it isn't easy sometimes. There's maybe some bias involved, but I would argue that a lot of it's just interpretation. I mean, you really can read something. One person can read an event and interpret it in different ways. I, I guess you could call that bias, but it just goes to show that events aren't like chemicals. You know, there isn't just one way to look at them. Yeah, you make a point, uh, Sherry. Parenti is clearly a liberal, though. He, he He's taken on all these other historians because... Most of us did rely on Gibbons and these guys. I mean, that, that's the way we read it. It's like the problem with George Washington. 
you know, some of the historians who covered him, we, oh, you know, he's good, he never had any faults, etc., as Jim was suggesting. But then other historians come with different points. And the revisionist historians, that was good that he pointed out there in the 60s. They really re began rewriting history. It would be really interesting to go back and um, read some of the reviews of this book when it came out from some of the other historians that disagree with Parenti, because that way you could see what their opinion was in terms of picking apart his points. I mean, not just the short reviews, but some of the reviews like they have in the New Yorker and um, some of the other magazines that tend to be more lengthy and detailed would be really interesting to find. John, did you, I know you do a lot of research for this uh, session each month. Did you read any reviews of that nature, and could you point us toward them? Uh, yeah, I, uh, you could try Kirk. Kirkus is a good way because they don't want to charge you. <laughs> for it. it's hard to look them up for the like the New Yorker or the Washington Post to get a yardly would love to get a yardly review on him but uh, most of them were fairly favorable uh, they they didn't they, they went along with and I was looking for critical ones too you know uh, and I don't see seem to to find them in uh, publishers of course every publishers uh, weekly or whatever it is they they're always pro the book, but uh, try Kirkus or just do an Amazon, not an Amazon, I'm sorry, Google. Just a Google with the title and the author in quotes, each in the separate quotes and write reviews, and you, you can go down and get a few, but you'll end up with Noble books and Amazon books, and uh, the editorial, they don't have very many. Some, some of the book reviews are very good, but not generally, uh, although I, I read them, and uh, to see if uh, I, like a lot of people didn't like the one on the on the Spartans either <laughs> for the same reasons. So, uh, but I'd go for Kirkus and uh, High Beam. They'll give you 20 days for free if you want to give them a try. But uh, they, to get to the real professional historians, I haven't been able to find. What about the isn't it the the American Review of History or American? Um Historical Society or something would they help us? I think it'd be worth looking looking at. Um, yeah, that's an idea, though. I think the New Yorker, though, and, um, and and so on. I think that's pretty much what I want to do. I was just wondering too whether this is going to change what they write in the textbooks because uh, this, this is a very definitely different. It, you just thought it was just some kind of political fight between them, you know, and. Uh, so uh, that was good. By the way, uh, I did find one where they, it was uh, a historic, I can't remember the name of the book, not, the uh, article, but they, they had a six-part article on that period. And, uh, you know, like there was 13 years before Octavian won the, the Civil War after Caesar was killed. They had the first and second triumvirate, and it was 13 years before... He won out, and uh, 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 they cut off old Cicero's head and hands and put him up on the Senate uh, board. So they were they were a tough bunch of people. And uh, this is Tim Cummings again. Just a, a, a personal comment here. Um, I think a lot of this too. I think people who've been been doing history, professional historians who've been doing history and working on a subject for a long time, have a lot invested in it. I got a chance because my parents used to have a house uh, at the Cape, and one of the people who lived down there was Dumas Malone, who was 
for many years the one of the foremost historians on Thomas Jefferson. He wrote a six-volume history of uh, the life of Thomas Jefferson. And when you write something like that over a long, long, long period of time, you really, I think you become um, really attached to the person you're writing about. And, I mean, he... And he never he never lived to see the DNA evidence, but till the day he died, he publicly denied that Jefferson ever ever fathered any children with Sally Hemings. He and I really think that part of it was he just didn't he didn't want to believe that he just he didn't want to believe it. And I really I think that you know when you've been doing you know especially. Jefferson, or if you've been doing history on a, particularly one person for a long, long time, you really become, uh, you know, you 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 kind of gather a picture of that person, and you just filter out any any evidence that um, would contradict that view that you have, you know, built up of that person who you've been studying over such a long period of time. That's a fascinating point that, oh yeah, that Sally Hemings and Jefferson and the DNA tells otherwise. And uh, still, though, I gather we're, we're jumping to somewhere else, but the Jefferson Society or family keeps the uh, black Jeffersons out of the cemetery there, right? They, they, they let them, they invite them to the family reunion. They had a picnic or something, and they invite. Maybe they don't let them in the cemetery, let them be buried there. I don't know, but uh, you know, I don't know why they was such a shock. You know, there was a big scandal during uh, the, one of Jefferson's uh, presidential campaign. I think he he propositioned his friend's wife when he was out. The friend was out of town or something. There was a big scandal about it. That you know, he was no shrinking violet himself. Oh my God, I didn't know that. Oh, I think so highly. I always will. Think highly of Jefferson, though. I don't care. I gather um, the famous quote by John F. Kennedy when they had, what, Pablo Casale and all these great intellectuals. And he said the last time that we had a, a meeting uh, of this import was when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. But, you know, the, the other thing that's interesting is, um, and I wonder if this is, you know, any different. Are we doing, as profession, are professional historians doing history any different today you know because obviously we you know we've come to the 20th century we've had revisionist history we've had marxist history we've had i wonder if you know the whole profession has changed to to try to um guard against you know guard against some of this bias or if it you know if it's still kind of the same old thing that it's just something we'll never escape and it's something that historians will never escape. I don't know. I'm not a professional historian. So. Well, one thing, and, and uh, they, they talked about that with uh, Tuckman, and uh, we, we had an interview with Tuckman. Um, you know, they, they, there's more material. You know, you got people's letters, and now you got their email, and uh, the, the, of course it's closer in, and, and the records are more complete than what you're getting third-hand materials on what Tacitus and Cicero wrote is just what they thought. We don't have the original things by Caesar himself, I don't think, and, uh, or the, the, you know, the, the, the deeds of property and all these signs that historians go. So they have more, but uh, there's more people looking at it. So 
I think they're a little more careful, but I, I tell you, if I'd written a six-volume work on somebody, I'd be pretty, I'm sure I'd have some pretty definite feelings, <laughs> investment in it. At reading the, to the end of the book, Don, do they, I mean, does Caesar fall in his sword? Is Shakespeare close to what happened, you know, his, his play on Julius Caesar and so forth? I mean, what happens? Well, he, he, uh, he, no, he gets killed. They, they stabbed him to death. There was a, a lot of wounds. I think it was pretty bloody. And then, uh, they, 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 according to what I remember, though the introduction seemed a little di different, they, uh, they didn't go out and have dinner. They, 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 they got nervous because the people, the, the mob was, and the people started acting up and, they, they, the senators kind of took off, and the people, the mob got out there, and they, they uh, killed some poor guy that had the same name as Brutus or something like that. So there, it was quite a, a reaction, and that's why uh, Cicero wrote his letter, though. He said that, you know, they, they got nervous, so they kept all his reforms in. Okay, thank you. I'll have to, I'm going to read to the end of this. Also read, because what happened after, of course, you had the, um, they got together, and they formed a triumvirate, and then they... They split, and I, I've forgotten all the ins and outs, but it, it went out for, then finally Octavian and, uh, was it Brut, Brutus? They had their final battle, uh, Battle of Actium. No, no, Mark Anthony, Mark Anthony and Octavian, who became Augustus Caesar. Hey, then where's the Pax Romanus? Is that Augustus Caesar that laid down the 50 years of, of peace? Yeah, that was Pax Romanus. But, but but that was a culture where they 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 were dependent on war. They were a very predatory empire. They had to keep the there was such a all these people were making this money off of the booty they of the tribes they conquered and the, the people they enslaved and sold, and it it was it was a I think a pretty sick society actually. Actually, the only thing they invented during that time I think was cement. Uh, there, there, I was reading a book on the uh, the Middle Ages and where they de developed the water wheel and all these things. Well, they had too much slave labor then, so they didn't develop any. And there wasn't a there, there was certainly literature that you can't uh, say. But I, I think it was just pretty much of a uh, it was a, a very large society. And of course, Con Constantinople lasted for a thousand years thought you're gonna say lead I don't know if you invent lead but uh, lead did lead to the lead led to their downfall I guess they developed lead or uh, they had lead before but um, and that's why those emperors were crazy they were drinking all that I mean they had lead pipes in the pools and they were putting lead pellets in their wine to sweeten it oh my gosh where did you read that when I was in England I went to the bath you've heard of bath where they had uh, well, they down at the very bottom they've excavated the old Roman baths out, and it's kind of a and they they were lead lined again. Uh, well, okay, they they uh, but they said they, they they said they put pellet wine lead pellets in their wine. Uh, now the, the lead part for the emperors I heard was that the uh, the vats that they kept the wine in were lined with lead, and. Um, and that's that does get into your system. The um, they were doing some excavating of the cemeteries in the East Coast, uh, the colonial times, and the way they could tell the rich from the poor was that there was bo lead in the bones, from uh, because they had indoor plumbing and they used lead. Yeah, I, I had always heard that um, throughout 
I'm not sure where I had read it, but it was about you know, how they went crazy or because they had too much lead in their system because they kept eat, drinking from their lead pipes and and stuff like that. Another thing that I've heard, you know, all my life was how um, when the Romans uh, destroyed Carthage, that they plowed salt into the soil and uh, made it so that it would be uninhabitable. And the author here says that, you know, that was uh, uh, was a myth. He seems to research things pretty well. Yeah, that was no reason to lie about that, I guess, because it would... Um but I wonder where that ever got started, because that, that sure, sure is something I always heard was the case. But it's it's interesting, you know, if there's a book out about how myths get mixed up with history, because you know, with um, the main one that I think about is uh, George Washington chopping down the cherry tree, and then and then I think me, I don't know if. Uh, I guess that's the only one I can think of right now. Well, you know, I well, I was a kid, and and I don't know how the I I know how those stories. We know the name, of, I don't remember the name of the author of these books, but everybody believed him when he wrote the, and they were just almost insipid story about. I mean, he, he made George Osh kind of like a little prig. He he, I remember reading the story about how he 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 rode his mother's horse and killed it or something anyway he wasn't supposed to be riding the horse and he went in and confessed to it and all this kind of thing so um uh we had to have these myths and yet he he was regarded as the you know that he did what he did was so incredibly great and we were fortunate to have a man like that that why they had to make up these stories about him it is interesting when you already have a great person why you feel you need to embellish their childhood even more um why can't you know on the other hand when uh, people start writing negative things about famous beloved figures then everybody gets on their case for being negative and anti-american so you know you can't win i think there's a couple books on bard about like the 10 biggest historical myths or something like that i'll have to look around and find it i might have it on my reading list or have read it at one time Oh, please do, Sherry. That would be interesting. I heard about the horse one, Don. When he rode it, he killed it, you know. And uh, that, that I don't know. I thought that happened. But uh, uh, I i believe, or, you know, again, from the historians I've read with bias or whatever, that Washington was a land developer. Some of the, well, he got active in the war because he wanted to hold on to the land. He owned half of most of Virginia, you know, and it was all to protect the land, a lot of these guys that uh, – finally broke away from England. It wasn't uh, the nobility, let's have a constitution, give everybody freedom. Uh, these were land uh, landed gentry from America who wanted to hold on to the land they had. In one of the books, and I found it on Bard, about George Washington, it was about the years between after the Revolutionary War and between and before he became president. And he took care of his during those years, however many years there were, uh, he pretty much took care of his personal business and managed his property. And he had pr- fairly extensive property out in uh, Pennsylvania and stuff. And he would, you know, just kind of travel around and around, you know, checking on his land and who owned it at the time. Who he was was um, was I guess they were leasing his land and stuff like that. And one of the things he got in George Washington got involved with was a uh, an idea that he wanted to um, 
make the Potomac River more navigable and uh, to make, either, make it even up further up into uh, wherever it goes, uh, West Virginia or wherever, <laughs> where um, make that the far end of it uh, more navigable and, uh, and build it into a, I don't know if it was like a more of a canal kind of type thing, but it, uh, I think that was one of his business failures. Well, I think uh, he, he did take care of, there was a whole TV series, you know, he, he, how he got all that land, he, he married the richest widow in Virginia, <laughs> and, and uh, uh, Martha Washington, and uh, uh, I, you know, there was a series because he, he, she had two children, and uh, there was a daughter who he was very fond of, and the, the son kind of resented him and, and just wouldn't work with him at all and resented but the daughter had epilepsy or something and she died later on but he had no no kids and maybe that's why he decided not to, you know the people were wanting to make him a king and uh the not having kids probably had a, something with it also he couldn't take the flack there was a you know the uh, printing at the time i think the reason he resigned the second term because Anybody, the, any journeyman printer could get enough money to get a printing press. He'd start a little newspaper, which was just a broadsheet that you'd, you'd sell, and they'd pin it up on the wall, and everybody would read it. But uh, they, they were really bad. Yeah, they were really scandalous. I mean, they really attacked you. This is, this is just not today, uh, if you read some of those. Uh, absolutely. Don, what did we read uh, for next time? I don't mean to sh you know, cut this short, though, but I want to be sure to get everything about the next book. Did I lose you there? I'm sorry, I didn't even have the control key down this time. Uh, okay, our next book is, uh, let me get to it, I'll read it. One. It's, uh, it's D.B., uh, I'm on the wrong line, yeah, 61924, and it's uh, American Theocracy, The uh, Peril and... Oh, I'm sorry, The Peril in Politics of uh, Radical Religion, Oil, and Borrowed Money in the 21st Century. And he goes through a lot of history in uh, the ancient empires, the Danish. He starts with Rome, but Denmark and how they, they uh, built an empire based on water and wind power, had the best ships going, and, but they wouldn't, didn't, weren't able to make the transfer to coal or oil. How Britain got hooked on coal but couldn't transfer to oil, even with Ch Ch Churchill's bit. And then he, of course, gets in the United States, and we're running out of oil now. So, and he talks about radical religion. And it's, it's part two, which is titled Too Many Preachers, and, and then on borrowed money. And I haven't got that far in, into, into the, the book, but it looks like a pretty good book. And uh, uh, it, it, it's written by Kevin, um, God Almighty, uh, uh, by Kevin Phillips, and uh, you may have heard of him. He wrote the, um, the Southern Strategy for, for the Republican Party, he was part of the Nixon administrator. We got a guy from the Republicans after Berkeley. So he... Uh, uh, and he's, he's, he, doesn't, he hates Bush. He wrote the, the Bush Dynasty. You may have read that. And he, uh, uh, he blames them for a lot. And this book was written during the middle of the Bush administration. But the thing on borrowed money seems 
uh, pretty apropos now. We'll see whether his, his predictions came through. Does he then, it's sort of like a three-part book, and each part's a little bit on a separate theme? No, no, uh, he takes all these factors, interrelates them quite a bit. There are three parts. There's the deal on uh, energy, you say energy because he includes these other things, but it's mostly oil and the history of oil, from the uh, George Washington buying uh, uh, oil springs to, <laughs> to uh, and the day, uh, um, to... Uh, then the section on separate section on religion. You're right, and he goes into a great deal. Deal. So there are three different parts, but he they're all inter interrelated because he blames religion for the the British uh, Empire going down partly because the the he means the Anglican white man's burden thing that they didn't change their ways and didn't switch and they thought they were the greatest and got into a war they didn't need to and uh, so th that's Kind of, and then he, he talks about the southern strategy and how the the red and the blue states as well as the or whatever they are and uh, so it, it's in kind of three parts yeah I think I saw this guy on book TV I've been wanting to read this book I remember when it came out there were a lot of got a lot of positive press and sounded really interesting yeah he's he's been on NPR you know quite a bit uh, Don do you happen to know what we're going to be reading in October since we're evidently not going to read Alexander the Great? Oh, this is what we're, we're the, oh, October. Yeah, I, uh, hold, hold on, I'll have to look. Uh, it's on the uh, end of the, um, Gaddis, it's by Gaddis, and it's on the end of this, the uh, Civil War. Hold on just a minute, let me find it for And Don, you could try locking that Alt-L should lock it, and all that unlocks it, too, for you. Kevin Phillips, I thought he was a Democrat. I What do I know? I read the, a little of the Dynasty book, and I've heard of my NPR, as Jill says, and uh, he's a very intelligent guy. Oh, he is, and uh, I found more th things on his book. I, I mean, usually you have to really dig for some of these guys. He, he, he was all over the Commonwealth Club, and, the, and this. I, I think we're going to use Terry Gross in part, but, or something from... One of uh, he was on seven minutes on uh, all things considered, and of course he he's a commentator on the station, so he is. But he he's very good, and uh, they he 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 said that uh, they asked him about Obama. That was back there, and he says, well, that that would be good in uh, 2012. <laughs> he should wait till 2012 to run. Well, he didn't. So uh, there, that I don't know about his political savvy or not uh, let me find the book here i just did a word search on the bard site the word myth and i came up with 183 183 hits and 43 of the hits are in the the myth the word myth is in the title oh my goodness you know it's interesting i did a word and you'll you'll appreciate this bob i did a word search on the bard site the other day for liberal most of the books that I came up with were like books by Ann Coulter and not very complimentary about liberals. So I don't know whether Bard has uh, has an editorial slant or not. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, Ann Coulter. No, no, she doesn't like liberals. The godless people, right? <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I couldn't find that myth book that I thought I remembered. It must have be a slightly different title. Um, so I don't know what else to search for to try to find it. But I know I've seen books 
maybe it was books on historical mistakes. I know there's one on that out there about uh, famous blunders and battles and things. Maybe I was thinking of that. That'd be fun to uh, get one month. You know, when it's lighter, maybe December, you're kind of on holiday. It'll get us all to read it. I'm worried that this book is probably 40 hours or something. I hope it isn't. I'm downloading it now. It's 19 hours and 13 minutes. Well, Bob, you know, it's kind of interesting because, and I forgot to bring this up during the discussion, but did you, did you hear the thing on the news recently? And I thought of you because you, I know you used to teach high school history. Didn't they just pass some new uh, law in Texas changing the whole way that they're going to be teaching history? Um, and you know, talking about how they're not going to talk about the wall of separation between church and state, and a very political, uh, ideological 